Father in heaven, we thank you for being our anchor, Lord. So many things that push us around, so many waves buffet our direction. We have a sure anchor in your son. It's unmovable. He's whom we can abound in work because we can be unmovable because he's unmovable. But yet those waves of difficulties and challenges, living under the sun, living in a fallen world, is difficult for us humans. Redeemed as we may be, we feel the effects of the fall. And so we ask, Lord, that you would strengthen us to trust you. You, you have the strength, you have the ability. We're going to be reminded of that today. Give us strength to trust you. Lord, I pray you'd capture my mind right now. It is in a million places. I hope you help me, Lord. I know you will. Remember the things I studied. This is an important lesson. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Numbers chapter 23 through 24. Take your Bibles and follow along. Just a great time to be in the Word together. We do have some, some things we want to talk about as a family tonight that are serious and important and good for family to talk about and see how God is going to answer those. But we do want to be in the Word. Can there be anything better than being in the Word of God before we ask Him to help us in other areas? Numbers 23 and 24 is my goal tonight. I don't have a whole lot of time, but we will fly as fast as I know how. <laughs> See, I knew you were going to laugh at that. Um, we come to four prophecies by Balaam. He is this prophet that has proved himself to be not a very trustworthy man. He has, uh, he's in this for not, not God's purposes at this point. But despite that, God has him under the constraints of the Holy Spirit. And so he's going to give these prophecies in these two chapters here. Um, constrained by the Spirit, the sovereignty of God is evident because he's going to do what God's going to do despite this disobedient, greedy prophet. He's going to speak through him. And it's amazing. I, I also think it's remarkable that throughout this whole event, as we're looking at this, don't forget, they seem to be up on a hill. He's up there with Balak, he, and Balaam are up there, and they're looking down and seeing portions of this massive group of, Egypt, uh, of Israelites that have come out of Egypt, and they have no idea this is happening. They have no idea that there's demonic forces at work trying to get them cursed. They're just down there living in the dirt, waiting for the promised land. Go, man, I really understand that. <laughs> you feel like you're just living in the dirt sometimes waiting to go home to be with Jesus. They don't know what's going on. I think that's such a great thing. This nation's just camping down there. There's a war raging behind the scenes. And I think it's a great reminder that God's protection of hidden dangers in our life all the time. Do you understand that? He guards you in areas you have no idea that he's guarding you. Because he's our father. You guarded your children and things they never knew what was happening to you. And that's what he does. And I love that. It's just a great reminder. Daniel in chapter, Daniel, chapter 4, Daniel uses the term. It's only thinkily used here where he refers to God as the watcher. And it just came to mind, and that's how it ended up in my title here. And Daniel says, he, as he speaks of the watcher, he says he's the holy one who descends from heaven. And so... We, we make that connection to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who descended from heaven. 
But the psalmist says things like this, Psalms 123, 121.3. He says, we will not, he will not allow our foot to slip. Good reminder. He who keeps you will not slumber. I love that. Isaiah 40, 28, do you not know, have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. So the one who never slumbers and never sleeps is watching over his people. He's watching over your heart, the beats of it, the cells, all the molecular structure that you're made up with. He's watching over all of that. And he does this all because he's going to fulfill his promise. He's going to bring us through the end. He who started a good work, started that work, and you will see it to completion. He promised to do that, and he's going to make sure he does. And so what a great reminder of this. And it is an interesting reminder how it comes in Balaam. <laughs> I, I, that you know this is God's word because nobody else could write this stuff. Well, look at chapter 23 with me, and we'll begin to make our way down through this passage. Number one, Balaam becomes a prisoner of the word of God. Balaam becomes a prisoner of the word of God. Just look at the first three verses with me. Then Balaam said to Balak, build seven altars for me. Remember, he has um, now been taken up to a high place the end of chapter 22. We looked at this last week just briefly. He tells him to build a couple of uh, altars and put oxen and sheep on them and sacrifice them. And then he's going to go talk to God um, in the morning. Um, and these are the same places they offered up to, to Baal, right? You understand that. So here now Balaam has Balak there. He says, build these seven altars uh, for me, prepared seven bulls and seven rams on them. And Balak did just as Balaam told, ha had spoken. And Balak and Balaam offered up a bull and a ram on each altar. I don't know who they offered it up to. <laughs> um, then Balaam said to Balak, stand beside your burnt offering and I will go. Perhaps the Lord will come to meet me and whatever he shows me, I will tell you. So he went to a bare hill. Now, throughout the first couple of prophecies that we see here, it seems Balaam is kind of just going through the motions. Um, I think he's frustrated. He, he wants to curse this nation so that he can get the money that he's doing it for, and God won't curse it. And no doubt, I don't think um, Balaam was not probably afraid for his life in some ways, too, because the king says, look, I'm going to give you all this money. You're going to curse them. This is the king of Moab. This is a very powerful man. He has an entourage with him. And Balaam knows that his life may be in jeopardy. So doubtless he's scared of this very powerful king who, by the way, has all his elders and these dignitaries with him. And he doesn't want to be disgraced in front of him. And that's exactly what's going to happen. But I do believe that Balaam is suffering from his own consequences here. He had an opportunity to obey God the very first time. He should have not gone with these men from the beginning. But now he's suffering the consequences. And God is making him suffer those out. He had a foolish desire. He had a greedy desire. And God's making him walk through that. And how many times in our own lives have we made our life more complicated because we made poor self-centered decisions? And God allows us to go through it, right? I don't know how many times I've prayed for my own life and for many other people. God, please Give grace in the consequences of these. I sat with a young man this week and prayed with him that God would give him grace in the consequences he's suffering from before he was saved. Consequences, they're there. But interesting enough, once Balaam starts down this path of his own desires, he's not permitted to turn back, right? Now, now you're going to go with them. 
you should have said no, but no, you didn't, so now you're going to go. And I think after the encounter with the angel we looked at last week and, and the sword, the donkey talking and all of that, he's going, man, why didn't I say no to this? Have you ever been in that situation? You go, I should have said no, and now I'm in way beyond what I want to be in. I think that's what's going through this guy's head. This was the only way we often learn lessons sometimes. We've got to learn to take God's word serious. When you know what it says and you don't do it, James says it's what? Sin. And we suffer from it. Even as believers, we suffer from that. Because we fail to believe his word. And so there's lessons that have to be learned in this. And we find ourselves in prison to our own decisions. You know what that is. You can talk finances and credit cards and relationships and all kinds of things. You can find yourself in prison to your choices. And often if you look at those choices, they were not God's decisions, they were yours. And you ended up in those areas. But God always is gracious to his repenting believers, right? He's, he's full of grace and mercy. And true believers seek repentance and they seek his grace and those con consequences. But look at, notice verse 4. Now God met Balaam, isn't that interesting? And he said to him, I have set up the seven altars, and I have offered up a bull and a ram on each altar. Well, this verse begins to tell us that God doesn't even recognize um, what's going on there. Ba Balaam, Balaam's done all these altars, and Balak's over there, and they're offering all these sacrifices. And nowhere in the narrative does God even recognize that false you know, worship. Uh, as you look at it, you'll see all four of the instances of prophecy here. He never mentions any of their worship because it's coming from two false worshipers. However, in verse 5, notice what he does. Then the Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth. So God's there. He met with him. And he says, look, I've done all these altars. I've done all this stuff from him. And God says, I'm going to put into your mouth something. Return to Balak and you shall speak thus. He knows nothing about that false worship that he did. God is not entertaining false worship. He does not go after that. And so the prophet is now told to don't disobey my word. Now speak only what I put in your mouth. And I think God just flat put it in his mouth so he doesn't have any opportunity. Look at verse 6 with me. So he turned to him, that's Balak, and behold, he was standing beside his burnt offering, he and all of his leaders of Moab. It's kind of funny, they're, they're there, wicked, wicked Balak's there, standing next to his altars with these burnt offerings. He's there with all this prestigious leadership, and, and they're putting all this on display, and they're putting their trust in a disobedient prophet. But God, God's not going to let him speak against his people. I think in a sad way, it's quite comical, isn't it? Here they are doing all this effort, all this work to try to get themselves the means that they want. And it's not going to work out. Verse 7. He, Balaam, took up his discourse and said, From Aram, Balak has brought me, Moab's king from the mountain of the east. Come curse Jacob for me and come denounce Israel. Well, Balaam begins his prophecy with a, introduction to the king and the king's request is quite formal here. Remember, he's got this entourage with him. And so Balaam's bought into the formality of this and he starts this, this way, although God is leading him that way. Verse 8, how shall I curse whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce whom the Lord has not 
denounced. Well, right away for Balak, things are going south, aren't they? That's not what he was after. Right? The first thing, the first prophecy that comes out is, I'm not going to curse what God's not going to curse. And from the beginning, all of these prophecies we hear here indicate that things are going different than their wicked plans. Time and time again. Look with me at 9 through 10. As I see him from the top of the rocks, and I look at him from the hills, behold, a people who dwells apart and will not be reckoned among the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob or number the fourth part of Israel? Let me die the death of the upright and let my end be like this. This is the words of God coming through this false prophet. He's, he's speaking through him. And so here in these couple of verses, 9 and 10, Balaam's under this constraint of the spirit, and he's just play, uh, speaking very plain English about the nation of Israel. And, uh, and this prophecy is so clear, isn't it? it it's, it's about how God has separated the nation of Israel from the other nations. You can see it in the text. I can see it from the top of the rocks. I can look down from the hills. Remember, they're looking down at them. They're in camp. They just wiped out Edom. They're there waiting for the next instruction. They have no idea this is going on. And, and they're, they're, they're ready to go, but they don't know this is gone. And, and, and Balaam looks down and he sees this. God speaking through him. He says, I won't be reckoned, reckoned among the nations. He, the, he's speaking in first persons about the nation of Israel. God is speaking through him in a first person about the nation. I will be separated from the nations. Isn't that amazing? Separate yourself and come out from among them. That's, that's what God does with believers, right? His prophecy is so clear, discerning uh, this nation. He wants them separated. He did this through the law, right? He gave them his perfect law, which is perfect, right? And that law separated them from man's law, right? So with, if the nation obeys the law of God, they're going to be separate. And that's how he brought them out of it. And that law that was given has caused them to be separated from the world for a long time, right? Now, certainly, Israel's under the disciplined hand of God, even to this day. But when you look back 30 centuries, now 30 centuries, Israel's still hated among so many nations, aren't they? They were told to be separate. Now, certainly, they're not obeying the law of God anymore, and they're being harshly punished by God. But it, it, you see this. You can see this in this prophecy. And, and, and then... And then he changes this, this tone, and, I, and I, I think this is just quite beautiful. He, he begins to see this divine plan of God. He begins to speak it. Balaam's prophecy is that it's, it's, he's showing this is what he's done from the ages past. Is he's brought these people out of Egypt. Notice he says, you count, who can count the dust of Jacob? I mean, this is a direct, almost a direct quote from Genesis chapter 13, verse 16. He says, I will make your descendants, as he speaks to Abraham, as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. And so he sees this. And then he says, let me die the death with the upright, 
let my end be like theirs, right? Um, he only sees a fourth of them, only a portion of it here. He desires to be, and I think what he's saying here is, in, in other words, he goes, I want to be like them. I want to be people that the God of Israel, the living God says, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you, and in all the families of the earth will be blessed. I, I think that's what he wants. And yet this is just prophecy coming out of him. And, and we'll see he's a fool and he leads, he tries to, other ways to lead Israel astray and he dies in a battle later on. But, but I think there's more to this too. <laughs> I, I, I think this also points to the prophecies of uncovering God's divine plan as he looks at this nation of Israel. And down in that valley, down in that dirt, down in that uh, wilderness is the seed of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's down there. And, and God's going to protect this nation from w- wicked Balak and, and the false prophet Balaam. He, and they don't even know this is going on, but the seed, remember the seed's down the hill. And I think that's fascinating. And there's no way you're going to curse them because Jesus is coming out of that. He's going to bless them. And, and, and from that nation and from that seed is one's going to come who's going to bless the entire earth, you and I included in that. So clearly God is speaking through Balaam, but this is an expression of the prophet's uh, desire to include, and I think he just wants to be included in it, right? I, I want to be part of this. He keeps hearing God said, I'm not going to bless them. In fact, here's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to curse them. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to bless them. I'm going to make them like the dust of the land. Notice verse 11. This extremely irritates Balak. Then Balak said to Balaam, what have you done to me? I took you to curse my enemies, but behold, you've actually blessed them. See, this doesn't, this doesn't go over good. This is the guy paying the bills. And you're coming to him and saying, this is what you want, but I'm giving you just the opposite. He's not happy. Verse 12. He replied, must I not be careful? He is Balaam here to speak what the Lord puts in my mouth. You don't understand, Balaam. You didn't see the angel with the sword. (laughs) You don't understand what's going on here. I can't say what I want to say. This is what I have to say. (laughs) He's a prisoner of the word of God. Left to himself, he would have cursed that nation right away. We know it. We know his character. We've seen it last week and we'll see it next week. But he is now a prisoner of the word of God. And God's using him for his purpose too. The living and sovereign God in the mouth of a false prophet. Look at verses 13 and 14 with me. Then Balak said to him, please come with me to another place. From where you may see, and although you will only see the extreme end of them, that's Israel, is a them there, and, and will not see all of them, Israel, curse them for me from there. So he took him to the field of Zophram. This is the place number two now at the top of Pislag, and built seven altars and offered bulls and rams on each altar. Well, frustrated, Balak's going to make another attempt here. So he drags Balaam off to another viewpoint. This is another section where he can just see a portion of this massive nation. I think you're starting to get an eye. I mean, we think of a few tents down there and, and 12 tribes kind of hanging out. This is, this is scaring them. There, there's not a nation around at the size of this. 
God has wandered them through the wilderness for 40 years, died off the elderly, and they're still dying. We're going to see some of that in the next couple of passages. Um, but he has multiplied them at the same, and they now look like two Balak and Balaam, like the dust of the ground. And he's nervous. And it's clear um, whether Balaam tells Balak or not, um, hey, this is... This is not going to go well, but go ahead. Let's, let's build some more altars. Let's put some more rams on there because that's what they do, and that's what we do to our false gods, so let's do this. And so back through the drill again they go. Look at verses 15 and through 17. And then he, Balaam, says to Balak, Stand here beside your burnt offering. Why I myself meet with the Lord over here? And then the Lord met with Balaam and put his words in his mouth and said, Return to Balak, and thus you shall speak. And he came to him, and behold, he was standing beside his burnt offering, and the leaders of Moab with him. And Balak said to him, what has the Lord spoken? Again, I think this is fascinating. Um, I I just kind of stopped here and thought about this for a little bit. There's a very mysterious fact here taking place, and you have to acknowledge it. And when you say this passage, you realize that God's speaking through clearly a man who's not a man of God. And, and all the evidence seems to point to the fact that he's, he's two-faced, he's greedy, he's, he's by nature a, a not a godly man, and yet he is overruled by the sovereignty of God. And yet God prophesies clearly through him. I mean, clearly through him. We're, not, we're just touching on some of these. And you go, well, is this, is this the only place it happens? And I think you could probably think of a few others. Let me give you a run and look at them. First Samuel chapter 19. Catch up with me. First chapter, First Samuel chapter nineteen, verse eighteen. Uh, Saul is chasing David. You know the story. He's trying to catch up. He wants to kill him. He's afraid of him, um, and and so he sends men. He hears of him in a particular area, and he sends men men to go after him. And David fled and he escaped uh, from came and came to Samuel at Ramah and told him of all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and stayed in Naboth. And it was told Saul, saying, Behold, David is at Nahoth and Ramah. And then Saul sent messengers to David. But when they saw the company of prophets prophesying, now these men were on Saul's side. And in the, in the Bible later, earlier, earlier tells us that David, uh, Saul surrounded him with not the greatest men. Samuel, standing there, proceeding over them, when he saw it, the Spirit of God came o- upon the messengers of Saul, and they all prophesied. So, so what's happened to Balaam isn't a one-off here. Then verse 21, 21 and when he told Saul, he, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. So Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they also prophesied. Then he himself went to Ramah and came as far as the large well there at CQ, and he asked and said, where are Samuel and David? And someone said, behold, they are Naoth and Ramah. He proceeded there at Namath and Rehah, and the Spirit of God came upon him, so he went along prophesying, continuing until he came to Ramah. Isn't that interesting? Saul's way out of the will of God. He's trying to kill the one who's to be the next king, and yet God uses that to proclaim truth out of that man. Well, is that only the time? Well, no, it happened in Jesus' day. Look at John chapter 11. John chapter 11, Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead. The place is going berserk. We got a problem. 
this guy who calls himself the Messiah is now bringing people out of the grave. Everybody is following him. That's the message back to the Pharisees and to the Sanhedrin, and they're trying to figure this out. In verse 47, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council, and they were saying, what are we to do? <laughs> For this man is performing many signs. Yeah, dead guys are coming out of the grave. Verse 48, if we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. That's great. And the Romans will come, here's the real problem, and take away both our place and our nation. See? But one of them, Caiaphas, you know he's going to be involved in the mistreatment of Jesus, who was the high priest that year, said to you, you know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that is expedient for you that that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Now he, now he did not say this on his own initiative, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not only for the nation, not nation only, but in order that he might gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. And that's the great full salvific work of God. And look at that. He didn't even know that he was prophesying on half of the Lord. Now there's... In, in, and you say, well, what about some of the wild, extreme, charismatic people who get into prophesying and all that? Well, Ma Jesus talks about that. We know these verses, right? Matthew chapter 7. I, I don't know they're saved or not, but here's what Jesus says. Verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is to enter in the, in, will enter in. Many will say on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not what? prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles then I will declare to them I never knew you depart from me you who practice lawlessness wow so God does at times in the scriptures speak truth through false men who are not of him not godly men not men of God to bring truth out to bring about his will he does that occasionally and yet in the end, they're cast out of his presence. And certainly that's probably the case with Balaam. Back to Numbers chapter 30, uh, 23, verses 18 and 20. Follow along. He then took up his discourse. Now here's what he's going to say, right? God's speaking through this false prophet. Speaking true through a false prophet. Arise, O Balak, and hear. Give ear to me, O son of Zippor. God is not a man that he should lie nor a son of man, that he should repent. Has he said, and will, it not, will he not do it? Or has he, or has he spoken, and he, will he not make it good? Behold, I have received a command to bless, and when he blesses, I cannot revoke it. Well, now Balaam has prophesied, and really what he's saying this is the una unchanging nature, the immutability of God. This is what he's speaking. He's speaking doctrine now, isn't he? He's speaking about the immutability of God, the unchanging nature of God, and particularly to this covenant promises with the nation of Israel here. And look at verse 19 just quickly again. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? That's what he is, right? Or, or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? This is, this is what God does. And so Paul says it this way. He says the gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. He doesn't change his mind. He is a God who fulfills his promises. And, and here Balaam is telling Balak, and Balak's looking at him, how do we get here? 
you were going to get a bunch of money to curse these people, and now you're telling me the theology of God. You could just see their minds starting to blow and smoke coming out of their ears as he rehearses the faithfulness of God, particularly to this nation he wants dead. Now look at verse 20 and 21. I've got to keep moving here quickly. Behold, I have re received a command to bless. And when he has blessed, then I can't revoke it. Verse 20. Now verse 21. He has not observed misfortune in Jacob, nor has he seen trouble in Israel. The Lord, the Lord his God is with him. And the shout of the king is among them. I, I think this is fascinating because the divine rebuke of Balak and, and Balaam now turns into this beautiful teaching of how God loves this nation. He does not, I don't think he's saying here in these verses that Israel is sinless. We, we know that. We've, we've been studying all the way through the Pentateuch. We've seen them worship bull calves and, and, and die in plagues and so forth because God does bring sin and he does punish their sin. Their wages of sin was death. But the truth of God comes out in these verses declaring that that. God, even though he is a righteous and just God, is a God who is infinitely merciful. And I read that. And, and you know, you can do things. You kind of look at Israel and you go, man, those guys, are they, just, they, don't, they don't handle God right. <laughs> but then you look at yourself and you go, God has been infinitely merciful to me. That's who he is. And as I studied these verses, I, I thought, Lord, you're just so merciful. You are not like us. You, you look at them and you, and you say, behold, I have received a command to bless. And, and, and then I bless and I can't revoke it. He has not observed the misfortunes in Jacob. Nor has he seen trouble in Israel. And you go, wait a minute. These guys, these guys are, are complainers and grumblers. And, and, and they're going to get into idol worship. This is the mercy of God. And this is how he handles them. And I, I, I just get overwhelmed when I watch God handle this nation. It reminds us, it reminds me of how he handles me. And we've seen so many times where he has done that all the way up. When he has blessed them, then I can't revoke it, he says. Many times God has harshly punished them. But he will keep his covenant with them. That's what he's saying. And this is God of grace, this immutable God who never changes. And, and notice the shout of the king there at the end of verse 21. This is a promise of victory, right? They're going to hear the shouts um, as they go around Jericho in time to come, verses 22 to 24. God brings them up out of Egypt. He is for them like the horn of a wild ox. For there is no omen against Jacob, nor is there a divination against Israel. At the proper time, he shall be, he, it shall be said to Jacob and to, and to Israel, what had God has done? Behold, a people rises like a lioness, and as a lion, it lifts itself. And I will not lie down until it devours its praise. It will not lay down until it devours its praise and drinks the blood of its slain. Well, I, I, <laughs> I think Balak has already said, if we look back, remember last week, Balak said there's great people. He tells Balaam, this great people has arisen out of Egypt. So he knows that. And he's rehearsing this to him. This, this great nation came out of Egypt. And it's been prophesied. And they came out with great power. That's when he says the horn of a wild ox. A wi uh, the wild ox, that's its strength. That's its strength, right? That's how it protects itself. 
verse 23, there's a reminder that Egypt too tried divination, right? Nor is there divination against Israel. They tried it. Israel, uh, Egypt tried to do it. They tried to turn everything, everything that God did, they tried to do. They tried to do the magic. They tried to do the demonic stuff, and God crushed them. And, and here this prophecy is coming back to, to Balak. And you, if you don't believe that people can't hear the word of God because the spirit of God hasn't opened their mind and heart and given them uh, regeneration, this, this helps you. Everybody knew what the God of Israel did to Egypt. And he's not listening. Here comes this great prophecy. There's what he did to Egypt, and he's going to do it to you if you try to curse his people. Notice in verse 25, Balak is losing his mind here. Do not curse them at all, nor bless them. I don't want you to do anything now. Everything we try is coming backfiring on me. I commanded you to curse them, and now we're blessing them. This is just getting worse. Verse 26, Balaam cries out to Balak, Did you not tell me? Whatever the Lord speaks that I must do, I'm just doing what you told me to do. And I can't. I am imprisoned to the word of God. In fact, Balaam's, he's under the control of the spirit of God. And he can't do what he wants. Uh, he would do it. And I think about now he's thinking, I wish I could go back to the Shire in, in uh, Pethor, where he's from. I wish I could just get out of here. This is going bad. Third, Balaam's eyes are opened and Balak's anger burns. Look at the end of uh, chapter 23, and then we'll make our way quickly into 24. Then Balak said to Balaam, please come. I will take you to another place. I, I don't get this, but here we go again. Perhaps it will be agreeable with God. <laughs> Wait a minute. God's speaking to you. This is how blind, this is, what, this is what happens to the wicked. They just don't understand God. So they keep pushing, right? Maybe he will agree with God that you curse them from that place. Let's try a new angle looking at his people, and let's see if we can curse them there. So Balak took Balaam to the top of Peor, which overlooks the wasteland. I'll give Balak one thing, he's persistent. Dumb, but persistent. Um, and, and I think what this tells me as I, as I think about this is there's no place that God will curse his people. He just will not curse his people. There's no place. He won't do that. He blesses. That's what he does. Verse 29, Balaam said to Balak, build these seven altars again here and prepare seven bulls and rams and all this for me. And Balak did just as Balaam did. He's going through a lot of animals um, and getting nothing in return. And he offered them up. Now, verses 1 and 2. Then Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel. Oh, a little change going on here now. He did not go as the other times to seek omens. But he set his face towards the wilderness and Balaam lifted up his eyes and saw Israel camping tribe by tribe and the spirit of God came upon him. Well, it seems now Balaam might be getting the message at some level, right? At least on this occasion. And instead of seeking some kind of omen of some kind of uh, way that he can manipulate this into a curse and, and yet keep uh, yep, gets his mouth closed, he now goes out into the wilderness. He Instead of just going to God, you know, I want to somehow figure this out, he actually goes out to the wilderness, and there in the wilderness he sees Israel. And I think at the sight of the massive, this massive wandering nation, the Spirit of God comes upon Balaam, and he causes him to prophesy again. And it seems now this third time that Balaam is no longer resisting the Spirit of God. He's been broken in, in, in some kind of way. 
I don't think salvifically in any way. Um, but, but he's broken. And he actually somewhat understands that God is going to bless this. And no matter what Balak and him do, God's going to bless this nation. Look at verses 3 and 4. And we begin to take up the discourse. He takes up his discourse and said, The oracles of Balaam, the son of Beor, and the oracle of the man whose eye is opened. The oracle of him who hears the word of God, who sees the vision of the Almighty, falling down yet having his eyes uncovered. Here we, we realize it's clear that Balaam has undergone some type of realization. He says two very important things. His ears are open to the word of God and he sees the vision of the Almighty. And yet, and yet, you'll see in the next couple chapters, he is clearly part of those who introduce the immoral acts of Balaam to the nation of Israel. After that, after that statement, and it's just fascinating to me that you can do, you can, you can be impressed with God. You could come to a worship service and you could hear the preaching and singing and, and you could be moved emotionally some way, but walk out the door and it does not change your life. And I think this is what's happening to him. Look at 5 through 9 as I hurry along through this. How fair are your tents, O Jacob? Man, this is not where Balak wants us to go. This is starting to be beautiful now. How fair are your tents, O Jacob, your dwelling, O Israel. Like valleys that stretch out, like gardens beside the rivers, like aloe plants by the Lord, like cedars be beside the waters. Now, now, wait a minute. I don't think that's what they're camping in. That's what you would like to camp in, but that's not what they're camping in. They're down in the dirt. And so what is this? Remember, this is prophecy. And so now the word of God is looking forward it's looking forward to the promised land, the land flown with milk and han honey. And so he looks at this and says, look, this is where God's going to take this nation. You want to curse them? This is what God's going to do. He's going to bless them. Verse 7, water will, fall, will follow from their, uh, flow from their buckets, and seed will be many waters, and, and his king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. Well, Agag is the, the Amorites, right? And, and this is who David just takes out. Uh, Saul starts it. He, he should have finished it, but he didn't. David takes him on, and actually Hezekiah is the one that takes him out the most. And his kingdom shall be exalted, and God brings him up out of Egypt. He's already done that. He is for them like the horns of the wild ox. He's the power. He's the source of all this. He will devour the nations who are his adversaries. He will crush their bones in pieces, shatter them uh, with arrows. He crouches and he lies down like a lion, and as a lion who dares, who, who, who dares to arouse him. Blessed is everyone who blesses you, and cursed is everyone who curses you. <laughs> what an amazing statement. I mean, you know, if you look back at this after we get into Joshua, and they go in and they walk around Jericho seven times, and the whole thing goes flat, and everybody dies but Rahab, you start to realize what kind of power he's talking about here. That's astounding, isn't it? And this is all prophetic towards this great victory that God is, God is giving. You can't help but see these verses look forward not only to David, because David is going to be the king of the great kingdom of Israel, but it's got to go beyond that. You can't stop there. It goes to Christ, and he is the ultimate one that crushes the enemy. He is the lion's yelp, right? He is the promised lion 
that lays down and you don't dare arouse him. And that lion will roar again. And as John looked at the vision and he saw a lamb slain, but from the middle of the throne comes a lion, right? (laughs) And so we see this go forward to fulfillment in Christ. This is not what they were after. Verse 10 through 13, then Balak's anger burned against Balaam and he struck his hands together. You could see this scene, can't you? Balak said to Balaam, I called you to curse my enemies, but behold, you have persisted in blessing them these three times. At least he can count. Verse 11, therefore, flee to your place now. Ooh, this is getting hot now. I said I would honor you greatly, but behold, the Lord has held you back from honor. Now, this is Balak speaking. I think this this is sarcastic in a way. You keep saying that the Lord won't let you say anything else. And so Balak joins in this and says, you keep saying the Lord held you back. You better head out of here. Verse 12, Balaam said to Balak, did I not tell your messengers whom you had sent to me, saying, though Balak give me his house full of silver and gold, I I could do nothing contrary to the command of the Lord, either good or bad, on my own account, what the Lord speaks, that I will speak. And so... Things are getting worse. One last point here, and then we'll wind up. A telescopic prophecy well beyond their evil desires. Well, the king of Moab seems to be blind to what's going on. There's clear warnings coming from God uh, through this Gentile uh, prophet Balaam here. And, and in, in chapter 24, verse 11, um, we see he said, Go flee to your place. And I think... Balak here is attempting to get rid of him. He says, I'm done with you. I've asked you to curse and you've blessed. But before, what's so fascinating about this last prophecy, and I'm going to do this quick here. um, This last prophecy, before he can get rid of him, Balaam falls into another prophecy. You get out of here. I'm done. I'm not paying for this. I got exactly opposite what I said I'd pay for. Leave. And before I can do this, I don't know what this looked like, if it was a trance or what it was or how he came about. All of a sudden, this next prophecy comes through. And he begins to prophesy. Look at verse 14. And now, behold, I am going to my people. Come, and I will advise you what, what this people will do to your people in the days to come. And he took up his discourse and said, Articles of Balaam, son of Beor, the articles of the man whose eyes is open. The articles of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High. That, that he adds. This is a different, he added uh, one more phrase in this one. Who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down yet having his eyes uncovered. So now he says, this is the last one is coming and now I have the knowledge of the Most High. He's showing me and, I'm sp- and he's speaking through me. This is fascinating. Now look at verse 17. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel. Ooh, the prophecy is getting telegraphic, isn't it? It's going farther. First, we see David. He, he, he's going to be the one. I, I think we even see it here. Look at in verse into 17. Shall crush, uh, and shall crush through the forehead of Moab. That's them. Tear down. Uh, all the sons of, really this is a Hebrew word, this is one of the only places we see this used, um, uh, the sons of Adam. He's going to take on all of mankind. 
Edom shall be his possession. They've already been taken out. Um, uh, Moses and them just fought them and beat them. Seir, its enemy, will also be his possession. Their neighbors, Balak can probably see them from where he's standing, while Israel performs valiantly. But one from Jacob shall have dominion. And will destroy the remnants of the city. And now it begins to go even farther. There's one who's going to do more than what David will do. Verse 20. And he looked at Amalek and took up his discourse. So he must see where, where the Amalekites are too. Remember they're, they're all in the border. They're inside this promised land. Amalek was deep in there. Notice it says Amalek was the first was the first of the nations. They're deep into the promised land. They have to be rooted out of there. Saul tries to root them out of there. David tries to root them out of there. Hezekiah eventually destroys them. Um, but their destruction is going to come to an end. And he looked to the Canaanites and he took up his discord and said, Your dwelling place is enduring and your nest is set in the cliffs. And that's that hill country. There were Canaanites in there. There were relatives of some of Moses's, and some of them stayed in there. And nevertheless, Cain will, come, will be consumed. How long will Asher keep up your captivity? Well, we begin to understand that Ishbotheth, uh, Saul's son, became king. And in 2 Samuel chapter 2, it tells us that he held Asher under his foot for the longest time. And so now we see it going out a little farther. But then, but ships shall come from the coast of Kittim. And they shall afflict Asher and will afflict Eber. This is, this is Assyria and Mesopotamia. This, this is now looking at Greece and Rome. This is now looking at Alexander the Great. And Rome is looking down farther where he's going to crush the enemies of the nation of Israel because his son is going to come through that nation. And though nation after a nation will oppose the nation of Israel, God will protect that nation and bring his son right into the presence in the middle of that nation and die in the middle of that nation and be raised from the dead in the middle of that nation. It's staggering, isn't it? And Balak saying, I just wanted you to curse my enemies. And now we're all going to die. And I think that's what he's saying. And then at the end, then Balaam arose and he departed and went to his place. And Balak also went to his. Those men are going to die. Because they reject the living God who's talking to them. Hmm, that's staggering. Father, thank you for this time. I know it's just a little long. We have a very important meeting. Lord, I pray you just help us, be with us, cause us to be gracious and, and yet honest and open and talk and work through things. Lord, give us, give us a good meeting now. I do thank you for these folks. It's so fun to teach the word of God to people who want to hear it. Uh, what a joy um, to spend time in the word of God. Lord, help us be listeners to you, Lord. Um, we do want to be in prison to your word, but in a good way, Lord. We want to be chained to you. We, we want to we go where you go. And when you died, we died. And when you rose, we arose. And so, Lord, we, we want to be um, chained to your word. So I, I thank you for this tonight. May you encourage our souls. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.